When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went to the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, that's not hard to do, and formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in order to, in search of Paul and Silas. Obviously, Paul and Silas were staying with Jason, in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find, when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, saying, "These men have, who have caused trouble all over the world have come here." And in the RSV and the King James the, uh, translation says, "The men who have." change the world have come here and who have turned the world upside down have come here. So here it it translates as causing trouble all over the world. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decree, saying that Jesus is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into a turmoil Then they made Jason and the others post a bond, and they let them go. And as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did a number of the prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So far, the reading of God's word. I have to also uh, give a caveat here. The the structure for this sermon is the structure of our pastor in Grand Rapids, Reverend Jack Rhoda, and I asked him permission to use it and to put some little bit different content into it. So it's a combination of Rhoda Kortenhoven's sermon. I want to give you a little background on Paul and and Silas so we can get get a picture of what was going on here. Paul was really an educated guy. He was the Pharisees' number one catechism teacher. He would have written a book on the catechism and the commentaries and the training. He had a total commitment to the law. He was a super rabbi. 
You couldn't get a more conservative, straight down the middle, Rabbi Hillel type rabbi than Paul. His initial mission was to find and arrest and persecute any believers in this new sect who thought Jesus was the Son of God and who followed his teaching. He dedicated his life to that cause. And he had a band, I always call it, the, you know, the Jewish SWAT team, sort of a Pharisee, bunch of top-notch Pharisee soldiers who would drag these Christians, or they weren't yet called Christians, but they would drag the believers, the followers of the way, out and uh, he would do whatever Paul told them to do. They certainly were beaten, and I, I suspect that some of them were killed. He considered Jesus a blasphemer, like Stephen, which you read about in, in Acts as well. And, and therefore, just as Stephen, in Paul's mind at that time, deserved death by stoning, so did all of the Christians that he ran into. This almost sounds like the beginning of, you know, of, a, of a Jason Bourne flick. But, but Jesus interrupted this career in a big way on the road to Damascus. And you all know that most famous conversion story of all times. He flipped Paul around 180 degrees. Turned him upside down. Now Silas. Who's Silas? Well, he was also called Silvanus. He was considered at the time a prophet whose primary task was to encourage the new churches that were forming in, in Asia Minor. He was a leader in the church before the journey with Paul. He was a Jewish believer, and he was from Greece, and he was also a Roman citizen, as Paul was a Roman citizen. He carried a letter from the newly formed Jewish church council in Jerusalem to the Gentiles, giving them some rules and regulations about how the church should be run. And he assisted Paul in his writing of the letter to the Thessalonians. And he went with Paul on, on a second missionary journey to Greece and Asia Minor, now called Turkey. So now let's pick up the story in Acts 17. Paul and Silas and Thessalonica. They arrived. They went straight to the synagogue, as was his custom. This was an oral culture straight to the synagogue where the Jews hung out and where there was constant discussion about the law. People talked to each other. They discussed ideas every day and philosophy. And the Jews went there to hang out, to drink tea, and discuss the law. Very similar things happened today in Africa, particularly among our Muslim brothers and sisters. No cell, well, there's cell phones in Africa today, but Paul didn't have one. No cell phones no texting, no Googling, no Facebooking, no Twitter. It's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? The synagogue then was a natural place for Paul to go every time he went to a new town. Especially if you had something that you wanted people to hear and that was worth hearing. And Paul believed from the bottom of his soul that his message was the most important message in the world. When you go back a little bit, you see that they arrived in Philippi in the previous chapter where they were arrested, they were beaten, they were put in jail. They were messing around with some nasty characters who were exploiting a slave girl. 
the slave girl had an evil spirit in her that allowed her to tell fortunes. And, and these guys who were exploiting her were charging probably the equivalent today of $50 a, a, a pop for her to read their future. Maybe it would have been related to the stock market today, and, and they didn't have one in those days. And she probably would have been a good trader. Paul knew that she could only do this because, because of the evil spirit in her, and he cast it out in the name of Jesus. Immediately, the owners of this girl lost a bundle of dough. So they started the process of lying and making up stories about Paul and calling him not only a blasphemer but also a traitor because he talked about Jesus as king. Then you'll remember that Philippian jailer story. They got tossed in jail, beaten, tossed in jail. And uh, during that night, all the chains came loose, of course. Remember that well. And uh, the, the officials were, were afraid because they had beaten and incarcerated Roman citizens, which was illegal under Roman law. So they begged Paul, literally, on their, they probably held his foot, as we say in Sierra Leone, Please leave us. Don't make a big case out of this. Go, 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 go. We're sorry. So Paul and Silas agreed to leave. They didn't make a big deal out of it, and they didn't press charges, which they could have done. Then they headed for Thessalonica. Well, where did they go when they reached town? They went to the synagogue. They reasoned with the people from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and die and raise from the dead. We're not told exactly what passages Paul used or Silas used, but we can take an educated guess, and I'll just read a couple of them quickly. One is Genesis 3.15, you know, where God's curse to the serpent was, he will crush your head and you'll strike his heel. The Psalms are, are full of them. I'll just read two. Psalm 16, verse 10, the Lord will not let his Holy One see decay. In Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the coronation psalm, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And we can't forget Isaiah in the Handel Messiah passage, a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain made low. And Isaiah 53 probably was talked about that day, those days. He took up our sorrows, was cursed for our iniquities, and the Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. And it's also a very good possibility that Paul used some of the same scripture or maybe gave a very similar speech that Stephen gave in Acts chapter 6, I think it is, when he was eventually stoned, or Acts 7, just before he was martyred. Or he may have used the same scriptures that Jesus used with the two men on the way to Emmaus after he had risen from the dead. Well, what do you think happened? The Pharisees, the Jews, got jealous because Paul was listening. The people were listening to Paul and not really listening to them, and they were starting to believe a new teaching. They were starting to believe in Jesus as a savior. So they tried to grab Paul, and I'm sure if they had caught him and Silas, they would have beat them soundly, and who knows what might have happened. But they got away, and instead they took out their anger on their host, 
It'd be like me getting, if you were angry at me and I'd run away, you'd, you, you'd get hold of Don Osman there. He was my host, you know, for this thing. And take, take, your, take your anger out on him. Well, they, they tried to do that. They tried to do that with Jason and uh, had to post a bond in the, in the whole business. In the meantime, Paul and Silas had taken off. This charge that they were turning the world upside down was true. They were teaching that there was another king other than Caesar, and really the only king, and his name was Jesus. And that was treason. So they could have been killed for their message. So at this point, you know, this is a rough missionary life. I mean, we've had some rough times, especially during the Civil War in Sierra Leone, and I'm sure Mike and and Victoria and their family have too. There's been a lot of trouble in Nigeria. It's time to take a break. You know, you can take a furlough. If you're, you know, you, we used to call them furloughs. Now it's home services. But it's time to take a break. Maybe Paul should have gone to the Caribbean for, for you know, a holiday in, in St. Kitts for, for a few months so that, so that he could study and, and maybe uh, do a little work on, on his post-doc degree. I certainly would have considered something like that. Little R&R. Put it into your strategy. But what did Paul and Silas do? No, they didn't do that. They kept right on going. They went on to Athens, to Berea, to Corinth, to Ephesus. Why? Well, Paul never tells us in so many words why he kept going when he was being so poorly treated, especially by the Jews. But I I believe we can make a couple of good suggestions of what made him tick. Remember his conversion. Remember how dramatic it was. Remember remember he was turned 180 degrees around in a moment when he met Christ. Changed from a Jesus hater to a Jesus lover. And one encountered with the Christ. Paul was repentant for the rest of his life. In Romans, he talks about himself being the worst of sinners. I think Paul was referring to the time when he persecuted the followers of the way. When he was breathing our murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Later, after his conversion, he was ordered to go to the town of Damascus. And God sent a man, a believer named Ananias, to sit with him and... Ananias gave Paul a message, and that message was, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for my name. And I, I believe that after that talk with Ananias, and when they prayed together, Paul expected tough treatment. He knew this wasn't a piece of cake ministry he was going into. And he was never surprised when he was persecuted. He expected it. It was in his job description. It was part of taking the orders from Jesus Christ. And the second thing that I'd like to suggest is from Matthew 13, 44. Jesus told a very short, to-the-point parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. Well, Paul was that man. 
he had found such a treasure. He sold everything he had. He gave up his, head, his job as one of the top rabbis. He gave up his position in the hierarchy. He gave up his religion and all the prestige and the perks that went along with being a rabbi, a top rabbi. And he bought the field. This treasure, this kingdom of heaven, was simply so valuable to him that he couldn't live without it. And he couldn't possibly be quiet about it either because he knew it wasn't just for himself. It was for sharing. And he did that for over 30 years. Almost the same amount of time that the Vanderdykes were in ministry in, Sierra Leone, in, in Nigeria. It's suggested by commentators that Paul's ministry might have started around 5 A.D. and that he was executed in 67 A.D. So, that's a... Sorry, it was, I got that wrong. He was born around 5 A.D. And his ministry started within a year after Christ was crucified and risen. So he was a missionary for that 30-some years before he was executed in Rome. And what a tremendous example he set for the church in, in these 35, maybe 40 years. Because of his work and the guidance of the Holy Spirit wherever he went and the supervision of the apostles, they were, he was getting good supervision from Jerusalem. They, he was accountable to the main church in Jerusalem. He had to check things out with him. He spread the good news from Jerusalem to Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, to Greece, and finally to Rome. And when he was in Rome, he wanted to go even further to Spain, but he never got a chance. So there's a major challenge here when we look at the life of Paul. And I speak as part of a missionary family for, for the last 40 years. There is still just as much need for Christian missionaries as there was in the first century. Our roles change, but the need hasn't changed. Up until probably the last 15 to 20 years, certainly in my lifetime of missions, maybe the last 30 years, we have moved from being in charge as foreign missionaries we have moved from being in charge of the missions in Nigeria, in Sierra Leone, in Uganda, in Kenya, in Bangladesh, in Latin America. We've moved from being in charge to intentionally playing second fiddle. We're, we, we're not going to be in charge. So if I go to Sierra Leone, I'm, I'm working for Reverend Bahago. And all of the people that visit there, they're working for Reverend Bahago. And uh, I think that's, that's going to be increasingly the case in Latin America, in Asia, certainly in Africa, because Christianity is moving from the west and the north to the global south. And I was reading an encyclopedia of church statistics by a man named David Barrett, and he said if you plotted the, the center of Christianity right now, it would be in Timbuktu, in northern Mali. It would not be anywhere in Europe. It would not be anywhere in North America. The global south has far, far more Christians and is getting far more Christians every day than the global north. In fact, Christianity is decreasing 
in the United States and in Europe as it increases in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. I was also reading in a book called From, from uh, New York, From Times Square to Timbuktu, by uh, Wes Michelson, who's a, a former head of the Reformed Church. Excuse me. And I forgot. Senior moment. It just threw out of there. Hmm. Maybe it'll come back. I, th- I think Michelson was pointing out that the number of Christians in the Reformed churches in the United States and Canada, the total amount, including both the CRC and the RCA, is around 500,000. In the CRCN, where Mike and Victoria are, I'm told by Reverend Bahago that there are probably 50,000 believers and 100,000 attenders. In the RCCN, which is right near them, in a different tribal group, the situation is much the same, and Mike can correct me at, at lunchtime if I'm wrong. And in the Teev area, the, the tribe among whom I work, there are as many as 500,000 Christians. So you put that together with about 4 million Christians in Zambia and at least that many Christians in South Africa, and you can compare us. You know, take a salt shaker this afternoon when you eat lunch and put a little salt on a, on, on a table and take about three or four grains out. That's the Christian Reformed and the Reformed Church in the world, in, in North America. And, and the rest of the salt, that's the Reformed Churches in Africa. We're much, much smaller than they are. And missionaries are being sent from churches in Sierra Leone, in Ghana, in Nigeria, in Uganda, in Kenya. They're being sent to Europe and to the United States to do mission work among Europeans and refugees. I read recently that, that a Pentecostal group in, in Ghana has just sent their first missionary to Baltimore, Maryland. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. What we do now when we go to foreign lands as missionaries in world missions is work alongside them. We help multiply the gifts that they already have. And it's amazing. I've been privileged to work with Reverend John Peary and Reverend Bahago. These guys have gifts that I only can dream of. They are really special, special people. And we use our own gifts in all kinds of ways, from teaching and building, making water systems, uh, starting businesses, small, small entrepreneurship, working with businesses, preaching, speaking for others who cannot help themselves, and being advocates for the poor wherever we are, being peacemakers and peacekeepers by praying and by giving and by working for peace. God calls us to these tasks. They're wonderful. We are here today, all of us, we're Paul, we're Silas, we're John Mark, we're James, we're Matthew, in the 20, only we're in the 21st century, century instead of the 1st century. We are believers who are called to always help as Peter said in 2 Peter, 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give an account of the faith of the hope that is in you, no matter where you are. That's us today. May God give us the grace and the knowledge and the desire to do that. Amen.